the biggest stories in the NBA from the local experts. It's the Monday edition of Locked on NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked on NBA. We're going to stop by, talk with Jake Madison about the Pelicans, what's going on with DeMarcus and Anthony. And then Jake Madison is going to talk to me because one of the biggest stories in the NBA is Rudy Gobert's injury and the impact that has on the West. And then we have a special guest from outside the Locked On Podcast Network, Alan Horton, Minnesota Timberwolves voice, will check in with the 7-5 and five Wolves and what he thinks of where they are right now. Those are the three biggest stories in the NBA. We're getting the local experts on them, and today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek. Promo code LOCKED, and you get $20 back after your first purchase. It's also brought to you today by Blue. Blue Apron, who's giving you $30 off your first order with free shipping. Use the promo code LOCK, L-O-C-K-J-A-Z-Z, L-O-C-K-J-A-Z-Z. Let's get the show underway. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Our first start today on the biggest stories, local experts edition of Locked On NBA. Goes to a story I was all offseason. It got overlooked. It got kind of overshadowed by everybody because everybody else made bigger moves. But we go back to the Pelicans trying to play DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis together. They're seven and six. They've played eight of their games on the road. They just finished the stretch of the season that I felt like they had to survive because if they didn't get through it, then disaster was coming. So let's check in with Jake Madison, host of Locked on Pelicans. Big picture, what is your vibe on a 7-6 and six Pelicans team? You know, if you had told me that just say going 6-6 six and six after the first 12 with eight of those 12 being on the road in home games against the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors, 6-6 six and six would be considered really, really good for the Pelicans. However, after seeing some of these wins, close wins over the Dallas Mavericks, which they only beat by five, an overtime win against the Chicago Bulls, having to come back from 19 down against the Kings, I'm downgrading it to slightly above okay in my weird rankings for how I want to see this season going for the Pelicans. So slightly okay. They haven't really had a good convincing win. They haven't beaten a good team just yet. And because of that, it kind of leads us to being uncertain about this team going forward, whether they're playoff caliber or not just yet. They're 16th offensively. They're 13th defensively. Are we just not sure whether they're an offensive defensive team or is that, do you think, still to be defined? Yeah, I think they're still very much a work in progress trying to figure out exactly who they are. We've seen that Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins can work and they can carry this team very far, but they can't get them over the finish line themselves. They need to get some help from guys, particularly from Drew Holiday, who they signed to the five-year $126 million contract this offseason, and he hasn't lived up to that. And if he doesn't start playing much better, he had a bit of a breakout game against Toronto before kind of reverting back uh, the next night later. You know, they're not going to necessarily be an offensive team. Defensively last year, they ranked in the top 10. They were kind of a defensive-oriented team. But then a guy like Solomon Hill goes down, who was their starter for all of last year, who's missing the majority of the season, isn't expected back until February. They're kind of treading water right now, but we've seen in times they give up points in bunches. We've seen a lack of effort from them on the defensive side of the ball, particularly from DeMarcus Cousins at times. So, again, it's just, you know, we're 13 games into the season and we have no more answers than we did after game one. So let's get to the the two, two core guys. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis. 
DeMarcus Cousins in Sacramento was a malcontent who had emotional outbursts, who took plays off because he was arguing with officials, whose body language was horrendous. What has he been in New Orleans this year? I mean, for the most part, he's been a model citizen since he's arrived. He's kind of gotten rid of, at least in my opinion, that that malcontent label, which was very fair to label him before the trade. And, of course, usually after a trade happens, guys are on their best behavior, and especially as long as the team is winning, which they're doing now. But he really does seem to be much more comfortable here. It might be the pairing of him and Anthony Davis. They seem almost best friends at times. Their post-game media availability after the last game was held jointly together from their locker room so it was kind of they're, they're joking around they're having fun he's been on his best behavior but he's still DeMarcus Cousins he still picks up technical fouls from the bench he still wants to argue calls right now they're not hurting the team as badly as they could be but going forward you never know and in close game and in this tight western conference you never know if it's going to be one play like that that makes the difference between making the playoffs or not he was so angry in Sacramento is that still prevalent No, like I said, he's been great here, you know, and the biggest thing to me with him was he bought into everything the Pelicans wanted to do this offseason. He dropped all the weight so that he could get in better shape and run. He was leading team workouts this entire offseason, everyone working out in Kentucky or Los Angeles. He's really shed that label. He seems quite happy, and the Pelicans are banking on that happiness because he is going to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of this year. He leads the league in catch-and-shoot three attempts. Are the Pelicans okay with that? You know, this is the, the, the biggest point of contention with fans and media kind of regarding this team. One, he's not a horrible three-point shooter. If he's making four of ten every night, there could be worse things for the Pels. But he's most effective underneath the basket, driving to get to the basket and getting a foul. You know, and it leads kind of to laziness when he's on the three-point line. Alvin Gentry said he wants uh, DeMarcus Cousins taking more threes. I think Pelicans fans would like to see him playing closer to the basket. This is going to be one of those things as the season goes on, we need to monitor. If the team starts going south, I see him taking way more three-point attempts and not helping the team win that way. Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins together is working. What is Alvin? They're plus eight, I think, went on the floor together. What has Alvin Gentry done to make that work? You know, part of it is that Cousins three-point shooting. They have to space the court for one another. But the biggest thing is these guys are just such dynamic bigs. They can play almost anywhere on the court. This isn't two Shaq-like guys or Dwight Howard-like players that need to be below the basket trying to score that way. Davis has a very good mid-range jumper. So does Cousins. They kind of play off each other really well with the ability to pass that Cousins have. And this was a big reason why Chris Finch was brought in from Denver. He ran that offense through Nikola Jokic in the second half of last season, and he's trying to do the same thing here in New Orleans. Cousins is, I think, averaging, I don't have the numbers in front of me, almost a career high in assists per game right now. His passing so strong, it allows Davis to kind of float around off ball, just find the best spot. And when Cousins gets that double team, which he does whenever he's near the rim, it's going to free up someone else for the open outlet pass. We are the... Biggest stories covered by the local experts. What's going on with this team locally that the national people from 30,000 feet don't understand? You know, right now the Pelicans are kind of in the midst of a big problem when it comes to turnovers. In the game against the Clippers, a game they really dominated from start to finish, but only won by a handful of points because this team is turning the ball over at a very high rate right now. If this team wants to be a playoff contender, they can't keep gifting opponents easy fast-break opportunities, 
easy points off turnovers while having empty trips offensively themselves. They're about to hit a big stretch of the year where they're finally playing some real playoff contenders, and it's kind of the period of time where we're going to see if this Pelicans team can make the playoffs, if the Davis and Cousins experiment can work, and if they're going to be able to re-sign Cousins this coming offseason because he stated his number one desire is to win. If they cut down on turnovers, I see a very, very good team here. Maybe not top four in the West, but I could see them making a push for the fifth or sixth seed in the Western Conference. He's Jake Madison, Locked On Pelicans, and does a great job with his crew at LockedOnPelicans.com as well. Jake, thanks for the local expertise on the biggest stories. Of course. Thanks for having me on, David. And while we're flipping around from host to guest, is what Jake and I are going to do in a second, let me tell you about Blue Apron. We're a Blue Apron family. It's been a great experience so far for our family, both just having meals that are fabulous, having the ease of getting them done, having the kids be involved with my wife as well when she's cooking them. Actually, we had a night where the kids just did it entirely. Who is Blue Apron? If you don't know, they're the number one fresh ingredient recipe delivery service in the country. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And let me say, they make it fun. It's nice because they're supporting a more sustainable food system, setting higher standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs like my kids. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often building those family bonds. And the food's great. The cheesy broccoli baked pasta with crispy thyme breadcrumbs, the seared steak and garlic butter with oven fries and romaine salad, the roasted chicken and fall vegetables with cranberry and ginger compo, all very solid. Great variety, super flexible. You customize your recipes each week based on your preferences, and Blue Apron has several delivery options. Meals come step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card. I mentioned the kids did it. Pre-portioned ingredients you can prepare in 40 minutes or less, and a guaranteed freshness from Blue Apron. Here's the best part. $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash lockjazz. That's blueapron.com slash lockjazz, but it's L-O-C-K-J-A-Z-Z. L-O-C-K-J-A-Z-Z for your $30 off your first order. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, Jake Madison here, host of the Locked on Pelicans podcast, and I'm excited because I get to turn the table tables on David here and question him because right now the biggest story in the NBA is the Rudy Gobert injury out for four to six weeks. The Utah Jazz right in playoff contention, just big picture kind of taking the local angle on it, David. How does this impact the Utah Jazz? Well, the departure of Gordon Hayward, this was Rudy Gobert's team, and they were building a defense around Rudy the most dominant defensive center in the league other than Draymond or Kawhi, uh, you know, in that group of three is the best defensive players in the game. And to lose Rudy Gobert for four to six weeks suddenly takes a team that now, you know, I don't know what the identity of it uh, per se is because this was Rudy Gobert's team in the sense that he had become the biggest name on the team, second team all league last year, and was what everything was predicated around. Yeah, you know, they rank in the top 10, I think it's seven defensively. Do they have anyone else on the bench who's going to be able to handle that load? And who really does replace Gobert in the starting lineup? And how do they impact, like you said, the team's identity going forward? Yeah, I actually think they might be as good as third defensively, but I could be wrong, uh, depending late my latest numbers might be off on that. So Favors, Derek Favors will move into the starting center position. What was unique about the Jazz was that they were playing two bigs. 
uh, Favors and Gobert will no longer do that, and they're very thin at the power forward position because now Favors slides from power forward to center, and your power forwards become Tabo Cephalosha, uh, Joe Johnson, when he's healthy, he's been out for two weeks, and probably Jonas Jerebko. Uh, so that is a that is a thin group at power forward, and the, now the Jazz uh, will not have that obviously nine foot seven standing reach and seven foot nine wingspan that is Rudy Gobert around the basket. Yeah, and then you know, like we said, their identity is a defensive team, but all of a sudden this is going to impact them offensively as well. Who needs to come in and pick up the points per game and what Rudy Gobert does offensively? Offensively, I'm not certain it's going to hurt them as much as it is defensively or depth-wise. The offense with Ricky Rubio, Derek Favors, and Rudy Gobert on the floor at the same time had been bad. No other way to say it. Uh, I think the offensive rating was at about 90. The spacing was really, really poor. Now you'll have the pick-and-roll game that was all... Rubio Gobert will now be Rubio favors with a more spread floor because you're not playing two bigs. I think one thing had become clear up to this point of the season, and that was that the Rubio favors Gobert combination was going to be a struggle, but that didn't mean that anyone wanted to do it without Rudy. It just meant that you probably had to use it limited. Now it will be a favors Rubio pick and roll with a spread floor and Derek, who uh, two years ago was was a pretty high level player. Last year was injured the whole year and not particularly good. Uh, I think will you know really have to pick up his game at a, at a huge level. Uh, and and he cherished the opportunity. He did a good job against Brooklyn, but Brooklyn is a constant reminder that you do have to play with a center in this league. Yeah, and I haven't looked at their schedule upcoming, but it's a tight race in the Western Conference, likely for those bottom four seeds out there the upcoming schedule do you, you you mentioned the depth but is this going to hurt them in the short one are they going to get put in a hole or are they going to be able to kind of weather this storm for the foreseeable future their schedule is very very soft and so it's either going to do one of two things they're going to either survive it because the schedule is so soft or if they lose games at all then it, the rest of the schedule is too difficult. So they play Minnesota, who's good on Monday. They go east for a New York, Brooklyn, Orlando, Philadelphia trip. That's, you know, Philly's pretty good, but that's not a particularly difficult trip. Then they're home for Chicago, Milwaukee, Denver, at L.A. for one, home against New Orleans, Washington, and then it just gets incredibly difficult. So right about the end of the four-week mark on this where he's going to be reevaluated is when the schedule, they play a stretch of 10 games where I think they will not be favored. Starting on December 4th, the next time I believe that they will be favored in a basketball game is possibly January 3rd. And if not then, maybe January 15th. Yeah, that puts them kind of in, like you said, in a tough stretch, and that's when you want teams to be able to be really hitting their stride. So you also see kind of a big of a rough spot when he's trying to be eased back in, and you said reevaluate at the end of it. They've Really, the key to this whole thing, Jake, is if the Jazz are going to continue to be a playoff team, which the offense has struggled so badly so far this year, it's hard to tell whether they, they are or not, uh, they're going to have to win over the next two and a half, three weeks. Because even with Gobert that next month stretch is just horrendous. 
Yeah, and you said uh, you know it, it's a lack of shooting and maybe integrating Ricky Rubio, who's not the most efficient scorer into this lineup. But Gobert was having a pretty decent offensive season. What have been some of the other offensive issues with the Jazz so far for people who haven't watched? Well, in my against Miami, they went one of eighteen in the second third quarter. They scored four field goals uh, in the entire second half of that game against Miami, which we believe, though not certain may be an NBA record for fewest field goals in a half. Uh, they, they're four, they're three primary shooters, which are Rodney Hood, Donovan Mitchell, and Ricky Rubio are all shooting below 40%. So this, it has been a real scuffle, uh, for the Jazz to be able to put the ball in the basket. Yeah, that you know, sometimes it's as simple as being a make-or-miss league, and if you're not able to get the shooters on the court, it can definitely be troublesome. So like you said, they've got an easy stretch coming up, a tough stretch after that, but Rudy Gobert out four to six weeks right now. Like I said, the biggest story in the NBA probably right now, and you're hearing it from your host David right now on the local side of things and how it impacts the Jazz. Before we have a special in-studio guest at the Locked On Podcasts, Locked On NBA today, let me tell you about SeatGeek. SeatGeek's been an original sponsor of the Locked On Podcast Network and been great for us, and I hope you are using SeatGeek. If not, you should be, because SeatGeek is the number one way to buy tickets to any upcoming event you might want to go to. In fact, I'm doing it for theater next Thursday night when we head to New York City for the Jazz. You can do it for football games. You can do it for upcoming NBA games. You choose the event. Now, the best part about SeatGeek, well, first is you go enter, download the app, go to the settings tab, enter in the promo code LOCKED, and you're going to get a $20 rebate sent to you after your first purchase. That's the best part. The second best part about it is that they compile all of the tickets from all around the area in one place so you know what the prices are, and they give every ticket a ticket score. That means if you don't know the arena very well, you don't know the theater setting, if you don't know the stadium, it can tell you which are the best tickets for the best price. And then it's secured, and it's on your phone, and it's that easy. It's why everyone is using SeatGeek now. It's why I'm using SeatGeek geek to buy purchase tickets to upcoming events i'm heading to you also can set the price alert to an upcoming event you're interested in if you know you're going to be at that event so go to your app store or your android play store or whatever it is and download the seat geek app right now go to the settings tab enter in the promo code locked and get a 20 dollars rebate on your first purchase seat geek an easier way to get tickets now, usually on Mondays, we only do the Locked On Podcast Network host. And remember to subscribe to your favorite Locked On Podcast across the network. You can do that. Subscribe to your favorite team's Locked On Podcast. And we have our biggest stories. But we have a special guest. Alan Horton is the play-by-play announcer of the Minnesota Timberwolves, a very close friend of mine. And he joins us for an in-studio visit on the Locked On NBA Podcast. And we're joined by Alan Horton, radio voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves. There may or may not have been a old Seattle reunion, second annual ping pong tournament between my daughter and Alan, yeah. and the second uh, play-by-play sleepover as one. There's no video evidence of it, no. so um, we can't confirm nor deny right. whether this occurred. But Yes, other than a morning podcast. Right. Which means that you took a really early Uber. <laughs> um, all all right. the way up here. Uh, let's talk Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, you guys want a nice little win streak and then drop one in Phoenix? Like, Do you know who you are yet? No, I don't think we do. I think early on we knew that when we had Jimmy Butler, we were a pretty darn good team. Seven and one with him. Um, the two losses just 
fell off the table as far as production, offensively, defensively. Two losses to Indiana and Detroit back-to-back, and it um, it was jarring, the difference with Jimmy Butler, without Jimmy Butler. Then you win five in a row, going to Golden State without Kevin Durant. Um, I still think that's not a bad loss, obviously. The Warriors, even without Durant, are, were just a number one defense in November, um, just had a dominant second half. And then the Phoenix loss is, is troubling. That's the one that kind of... You know, you expected to bounce back against, and you don't. And now you're kind of left wondering, okay, where where is this team? What what are they? The team that won five in a row and looked better defensively, and we're starting to figure things out. Um, or you know, you give up 54 percent shooting and and over 60 percent effective field goal percentage to Phoenix. That's not that's not good. Troubling in the sense it just kind of showed all the old Timberwolves warts, a late game collapse, and then a lack of defensive. Is that kind of what's troubling about yeah, it? Yeah, and I think a lot of Wolves fans are going through that. They're going through that, you know, we they know the history. Last year, the year before, years before that, 13 straight years of not making the playoffs. And so every game, they're kind of judging this by, well, in the past, this is the kind of game we would lose. And so when you do lose one like that, oh, here we go again. Uh, but it's obviously a different roster, a different time. But the late game issues were evident against Phoenix. I mean, you're up by six with four minutes to go, and you've got possession of the basketball. And you give up a 14-0 run. I mean, it was a complete um, and utter turnaround from what we've seen in clutch time. Um, We won one game against you guys close with Jamal Crawford's three in the corner. But it's um, they had turned things around in clutch time, which is something they have not been a strong clutch time team last year, year before, five years in a row now bottom 10 in the league in, in clutch time win percentage. So it was it was a little disturbing to see that happen against Phoenix just fall off the table like that. Clutch is such a weird stat because sometimes it has to do with whether you're coming in winning or trailing. or you It know. does. I, it mean, does, I really started I, to narrow it down last year to final five minutes within three so that, you know. So it's a little closer. Even closer to some. If you come in, if you hit the bucket to put it to five and they have the ball, it's not actually a very close game at that point. No, it's too. not, but you hope that maybe that balances out. Maybe right. there are some games where the opponent comes within five and then you close it out. But there is a huge difference, and I've noticed that this year, even coming into those clutch moments, even or ahead by a, a possession, that's that makes all the difference in the world. So two things about your team that I think, one from the beginning of the year that I thought was interesting the whole time out, when I ran some projection numbers to start the year, it was actually Minnesota, not Oklahoma City, that had the most amount of possessions on their roster. Now, we're seeing Oklahoma City, all those guys are getting their shots. Like, it's not as though Carmelo or Paul George or West Westbrook's taking a few less, but really, they're all they're getting their shots because the other guys just aren't. Your team's very different in the sense that Teague's a high-possession user, Butler's a high-possession user, Wiggins, Towns are super high. Uh, Taj Gibson is a bigger possession user than people realize, usually around 11, 12, 13, 14 a game. So, and then you had Shabazz, then you have Gorgie Jan. I mean, Jamal you, Crawford. Who's, and Jamal Crawford. Yeah. So when I totaled up the Minnesota possessions, uh, I had it somewhere, you know, you're supposed to have about 100 a game. I had you at about 120, which meant that every guy on your team had to take about a 10 or 15% decrease of their usual usage. Uh, not usage rate, but just present. What what has happened in that regard? How has that played out? The way it's played out is that Jimmy Butler has deferred to everybody. His usage rate went from, what, last year about 27% down to 20%. He was fifth on the team heading into that Phoenix game. So he has really deferred to Towns, to Wiggins. Um, even Jeff Teague has a higher usage percentage. And then uh, Jamal Crawford coming off the bench. That's a little misleading because Jamal is usually on the second unit when Jimmy's not out there. Uh, but it's been... 
has been Jimmy Butler doing all the little things, deferring to other guys. He's fine with it. Um, but when we went into that Golden State game, when you get to those big games, you need your big players to step up. And I really felt like that Warriors game, I kept waiting, and I said it on the air, nobody could get anything going. You're like, okay, this is the time where Wiggins has to step up or Towns, or maybe it's Jimmy Butler. Maybe it's his time to finally start emphasizing his offensive game. Um, it didn't happen. And then the practice before the uh, Phoenix game, he came out and said, the time is now for me to be more aggressive. He was only averaging about 12 shots a game. He took 17 last year. We talked about the usage rate. His free throws are almost cut in half from a season ago. And so he was more aggressive against Phoenix. He shot it 17 times. He got to the free throw line 16 times. Um, but he didn't shoot the ball very well. His, his shot has been pretty much off almost all season. Um, he struggled on his long twos, hitting just 16% from there. And he's taking a bunch, you know, two or three shots a game from that range. Um, and so he has deferred. And now it'll be interesting to see when he says he wants to be more aggressive, what that does. Because now that's going to take away shots from Wiggins, Towns, Teague. Um, how that balance. I just think they have to find that balance somewhere there where he is a little more aggressive. But I don't think that means getting back to the numbers where he's been last year and in years prior. Final thing for you. I was listening to Kevin Arnovitz and Kevin Pelton on a, I think it was their Hoops Collective podcast. Yep. They did this segment of called Rodney Hood or Andrew Wiggins, which, I'll be honest, I was like, even as a Rodney Hood guy, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And they went through it being pretty critical of Andrew Wiggins. I then go and look up my pack numbers. He's pretty substantially negative player. Um, and do, doesn't do a lot of other things. What does he need to do to get people? I don't know if I, the phrase "back on his side" is right, yeah. but he's obviously gone from this number one pick that people, including myself, thought he was going to be otherworldly, to now having a conversation like Arnovitz and Pelton, two of the brightest game names in the game, are having. Yeah. What is what is the next steps, and where does Andrew Wiggins? What does he have to do? Well, I think Wolves fans have been the, part of the problem is that you have these expectations coming in. You know, when, when he was drafted number one, hey, he is a lockdown defender. He can be your top defender on the other team's best player. And that just hasn't materialized. Um, you know, what he does well is score the basketball. And he, he, he has been able to get to the free throw line well. Um, he's developed his outside outside shot, which has gotten better each and every year. So he's become more efficient that way. But he still relies on the mid-range an awful lot. And it's been amazing now in his fourth year that, the, the rebounding numbers, the assist numbers, the steals, the blocks are just really, really low. And I think that's what fans are waiting for. Um, and I think that's what I, I keep waiting for, too, is to, you know, to average six or seven rebounds a game, which is not, I don't think, out of the realm of possibility for a small forward who's who's six foot eight and has great athletic ability like he does. Um, you know, he's on a stretch right now where he has one rebound in the last 49 minutes of play. He has no assists in his last 41 minutes of play. And it's not to point that out that we keep track of all that, but it's just so glaring sometimes that he doesn't give you those other things. He's not filling the rest of the box score. Um, and that's that's been frustrating. I think it has been – I think he's been more efficient. He's been better of late. He's shooting almost 60% over his last three games. I think he's found a nice little complementary role now that Jimmy Butler is there and Butler can be the top defender. I think that frees things up. I think that lifts the burden that's been on Wiggins his first three years where he's had to carry the load offensively and carry the load defensively. Um, and I think that's, that's suffered on the defensive end because he's had to carry such an offensive load, he and Cap both. Um, but I think we keep waiting for him to fill the rest of the box score. But you're now at a point where in your fourth year, how much more time 
do you give a guy? I mean, he's going to be he he's, he signed the contract extension. He's a max guy, and I think I think these whispers and talk about that will only continue to grow unless he's able to find a way to, to fill the rest of that box score. Minnesota seven and five. Frankly, if Wiggins doesn't hit a half court shot and Jamal Crawford doesn't hit a great corner three, they're five and seven, and we're talking. We're worried about them. Mm-hmm. They probably should be somewhere in the middle. It's an interesting team. Still ranked twenty eighth in the league defensively, which is stunning as well. Alan Horton, honorary member of the Locked On Podcast Network, once host of Locked On Wolves, actually for a brief little stint. That's there. right. Uh, got got and, that thing started. I got it off the ground. Let's, you did. Yeah. Yeah. Colton's doing an incredible job with it now uh, on Locked On Wolves. This has been the play-by-play announcer hmm, you'll never know (laughs) that concludes the monday edition of locked on nba biggest stories local experts thanks for alan horton colton molesky does a great job with locked on wolves give him your love as well he'll be back with us this year because that team's going to put it together and be a story throughout the season i'm certain of it today's show was brought to you by blue apron go to blueapron.com slash lock l-o-c-k-j-a-z-z l-o-c-k-j-a-z-z to get thirty dollars back on your first meal and seat geek promo code locked gets you twenty dollar rebate on your first purchase now go listen to your favorite locked on podcast of your favorite team remember you can tell alexa or google to do it for you if you want to have a great day this has been locked on nba part of the locked on podcast network